Well, it's that time again for us to dig into the Word of God together. I'm very excited to pick up with a new fruit this morning, uh, the fruit that is joy that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And we've already talked about love, and I want to talk about joy this morning in Galatians 5.22 and start by way of Philippians 4.6. You've just heard Philippians read this wonderful passage. Verse 6 is something I want to draw your attention to. Paul said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, what's astounding about this verse is that it is in a context where Paul tells us that we should not be worrying. Of course, worry is a sin, but he tells us more than that. He tells us that we should be rejoicing instead. That's in verse 4. So let me put that another way. In every instance where you are tempted to worry, you should be rejoicing instead, right? Does that describe you? I, I didn't think so. Me neither. We both need to work on this for sure, but you might be caused to say, well, what is this joy that should, that should describe our countenance in those times when it's more natural, at least according to the world's point of view, to be anxious and worried? Well, we're going to answer that question today and also next Lord's Day. We have a two-parter again in joy. There's much to say about joy. Now, we're not going to be ex as exhaustive as I would like. We're not going to say everything there is to be said about joy, but hopefully we can give you enough where uh, you will be driven uh, in, um, in godly directions when it comes to joy and expressing it. I'll begin my... Uh, to, to point out that anyone who reads the Bible, even casually, cannot help but admit that joy is certainly one very strong characteristic of a true worshiper. It's actually a distinguishing mark of God's people, a distinguishing mark. Consider, for example, the Old Testament believers, just for a moment or a couple of moments, the character of their personal and communal lives was strongly marked by their exuberance and an energetic kind of cheerfulness. True Israelites were joyful people, no question about it. They were excited about their God, who they were in God, the fact that he ruled them in a theocracy, that they had his truth in writing, that they had a a good, a good godly heritage that chronicled the great acts of God's saving grace, that they had a message that they were to live to the rest of the world. Joy was a distinguishing mark of these people, a distinguishing mark of their existence, every part of their existence. There are no two ways about it. Now, let me give you some examples. Take their vocabulary. The Jews had several Hebrew words for, and phrases for joy in the Old Testament. Ze uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 and 17 may have as many as eight different words and phrases to capture joy. This is one small passage. Zephaniah says, Sing for joy, daughters of Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad. Celebrate with your whole heart, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord your God is among you. 
a warrior who saves you. He will rejoice over, with, over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight, number seven, in you with singing. Now the word in particular, one word in particular among these words for joy, and one of the most prominent in the Old Testament, can refer both to the state of being joyful and also the expressions of joy. That's how versatile the Hebrew language was. Take also their calendar. Uh, their year was divided into several major festivals, three of which were mandatory. Uh, three festivals, or these festivals rather, were seven days long. They opened and they closed with a solemn assembly and sacrifice, but the five days in between, well, they were filled with eating and singing and dancing and dancing, and did I mention dancing, <laughs> and shouts of joy. Oh, yes, exuberant. They celebrated God's faithfulness to provide crops for them, times of refreshing for them. When they dedicated the temple, coronated a king, or over military victories, take also their worship. Now, this is by far the most important manifestation of their joy. Temple worship was the main and most sacred time of rejoicing. The Israelites longed to be in the temple. It was their center of existence. It was where believers worshipped God, where they witnessed God's glory, the Shekinah glory, come and consume their sacrifices. Asaph learned the fate of the wicked, and he was shaken out of his spiritual torpor there in the temple. The true worshiper left his time of, 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 of the mundane, and he came to worship, and he came rejoicing, knowing that he had received God's forgiveness for his sin. This would be in a time of repentance. And he rejoiced that he was in fellowship with God, that he had communed with God when he left the temple. And you can learn a lot about a, a church or a denomination by its hymn book. And the Psalter was Israel's temple hymn book. Maybe you didn't know that. And the commands to the congregation to rejoice abound. Take their private lives. The Israelites experienced all kinds of personal joys of life on a daily basis, the Holy Spirit saw fit to have them record them for us. That's how important they were. In Ecclesiastes 11, verses 8 and 9, it calls us to rejoice for life that God gives us. If a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. Rejoice, you man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your manhood. Proverbs 23, 24, and verses 24 and 25 say that a wise son makes his parents glad. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. And he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad and let, their re let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 23 speaks of the joy that a wife brings to a husband. Let your foundation be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe be exhilarated always by her love. Proverbs 15.23 says that a choice answer is a joy. A man has joy in an apt answer. 
and how delightful is a timely word. The Psalter speaks of God's forgiveness and blessing and communion as a source of our joy. A few examples. Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 4, verses 7 and 8, you have put gladness in my heart. More than when their grain and their new wine abound, in peace I will bow, uh, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Psalm 63, verses 4 and 5, so I will bless you as long as I live. And I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied with the marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praise with joyful lips. Israelite believers believe staunchly that all their joy came from God, not just when they were forgiven either. They attributed all their personal daily joys in life to the fact that they were in covenant relationship with God. They saw God as their ultimate joy and the ultimate cause of their happiness, their contentment, their satisfaction in life. David could write in Psalm 16, The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The, measurement, the measuring lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has advised me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Now, there's no mistaking the fact that the Israelites attributed their joy to their covenant relationship with God. No question. And this relationship is at the heart of their praise. And that truth leads me to do, digress just for a moment to alert you to the fact that there is a close relationship between joy or rejoicing and praise. In many Psalms, rejoicing and praise are almost synonymous. One means the other. At other times, we find that joy is the manner in which we praise. They make their requests known with thanksgiving. Either way, praising God and rejoicing in Him is inseparably bound. And that means that for righteous Israelites, if they were, to, if they were thankful to God, they were praising Him. God's mercy and goodness in their lives caused them to rejoice, and their rejoicing necessarily involved praising God. In his work, Reflections in the Psalms, C.S. Lewis shows this link between praise and joy in the faithful worshiper. He explains that a person naturally will praise that which he appreciates. And in fact, his praise at that moment is part of the enjoyment. And this is because, as Lewis explains, to enjoy something fully, one must speak of it. And in the context of the church, enjoying God translates into praising him, boasting of his mercy and his grace. As our catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Thus the Bible invites us to praise the Lord and it's an invitation 
to revel in God, to revel in his benefits. If a believer was not praising God, it meant that he wasn't enjoying God or his benefits, plain and simple. If God loads his people daily with benefits, as the psalmist says, both spiritually and mentally, God's will for that person is to return thanks. You would never find a genuine believer in Israel under the Old Covenant failing to praise God for, for receiving God's blessings. Never. In fact, his greatest fear was to die and not be able to praise God in the midst of the congregation. Listen to Psalm 30, verse 9. What gain is there in my blood, O God, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? This was a reason that the psalmist gave God to deliver him. What a position that is. God wants his people to praise him when they receive his blessings. And this is why the Old Covenant commanded praise, both private and public. The Levitical Code calls for a sacrifice of thanksgiving, which the Lord instructs shall be presented to the Lord by way of thanksgiving. It was clearly sin not to praise God in the public assembly in the Old Covenant. It meant that a believer was not enjoying God's benefits, clearly. If one's not thankful to God, then he was certainly not rejoicing in God's mercy and grace. And if he was not rejoicing, then he must be grumbling. And God never tolerates grumbling. It just opens the ground and a lot of people fall in. <laughs> he judges those who are not thankful, sometimes quite severely. And when we hear the individual and communal praise of, right, of righteous Israel in the Psalms, we are convinced that they were thankful people who constantly praised God for their blessing, even in the midst of trial. Now, if this was true of God's people under the Old Covenant, how, how much truer is it of God's people under the New Covenant? Oh, much truer. There's a, there are examples of churches rejoicing over God's work among them, and that makes sense since the New Testament also commands us to praise. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. To glorify God is the same thing as praising God. We technically boast of his goodness and in a way before people that emphasizes his worth and value in their eyes. Another command is Philippians 3.1, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. And in chapter 4, verse 6, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, again I say rejoice. The passage on which we base our practice of public praise in our assemblies here at PRBC is Hebrews 13, 15. The writer says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips praising his name. You realize that the rejoicing and praising that we do in our communal worship will be our main occupation in heaven? You, you realize that, right? In Revelation 19.5, John writes, A voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all his servants, 
and the ones who fear him, both small and great. The whole inhabitants of heaven, not just the angels that surround the, the throne, not just the 24 elders who bow down and worship, but everyone. In Revelation 22, John assures us that we will worship God, a practice of which praise is an integral part, and we will reign with him forever and ever. And there's also plenty of examples of individual believers rejoicing in God's work in their lives. In Philippians 4.10, Paul says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. In 2 John 1.4, the Apostle John says, I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received a commandment to, to do from the Father. And again, in 3 John 1.3, I was overjoyed when brothers came and testified to your truth. That is how you were walking in the truth. Okay, so we've established then just how necessary it was for Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints to display a disposition of joy in their lives. And it has continued and will continue to remain just as necessary for God's saints in these last days. All the more reason why we need to take our time and uh, with our study of joy as a fruit of the Spirit. You know, I truly believe that the need for the church today to live up to its full potential when it comes to displaying this great fruit is great, a great need. There's so many Christians out there who lack the joy of the Lord. And by that I mean we, they are unaware that they possess this deep and abiding joy in their hearts as true believers, and therefore they're not tapping into it. And they not only lack joy, but often they're quite miserable. Well, you can see it on their faces. Christians, sad to say, are some of the most miserable and depressed people I've ever met. And frankly, beloved, that does not compute. I've known believers who walk around with this dour and glum face, who express no joy in the Lord. They don't greet other believers when they see them. They they let their circumstances get the better of them. This is a real problem. I'll put the gravity of the situation this way. If you're not a joyful Christian, there's something wrong with your relationship with Christ. In fact, I would go so far as to say that in some instances, a person who professes to know Christ and lacks a robust and consistent display of joy in his life might very well not be a Christian since you cannot claim to know Jesus without knowing his joy. Now, having said that, I also think that it's more often the case, giving people the benefit of the doubt, that such joyless Christians simply have a profound ignorance about the fruit of the Spirit. They don't know that there is such fruit, much less what it means to display it. They're missing those foundational truths about the fruit that we've already covered thus far in our study of the fruit of the Spirit. And what's more, I think that they've also been guilty of having dragged their sinful habit of complaining right into the Christian life, the habit of complaining that they've executed so well in their unconverted life. 
They just bring it right into the faith with them. The bottom line is that they, they don't know how to display the fruit of joy. And this is what happens when Christians who bring their secular views and practices into the faith with them, and they're not taught properly. There's a lot of bad teaching going on. And they make for very bad testimonies. You can certainly see that, and you wouldn't want to introduce them to any of your unbelieving friends that you may have been witnessing to, right? Which brings up another need. I'm referring to the need for the church to display this joy to the world in hopes of making the faith attractive. There's an evangelistic element to practicing this fruit. We made the point in our introduction that the world has manufactured a counterfeit for every one of the fruits of the Spirit. The the world craves them, obviously. And that shouldn't surprise us when we know that every one of God's image bearers were meant to bear this fruit. Yet in a fallen condition, no one can. You must be born again in order to know and practice this fruit. You must be born again. And these are the fruits of the Spirit, of the Spirit, fruits that the Spirit produces in the believer. What unbelievers crave and display, they are only vestiges of the genuine articles they seek, they seek them for their really personal benefit. We saw this with love, right? The element, there's an element of selfishness and self-preservation in the display of this counterfeit fruit. And the same is true for joy. Worldly joy is conditioned upon circumstance. If the circumstance is right, then I will rejoice. If situations would be desirable, Of course, I would rejoice. A long-lost uncle dies, and he's left you a great inheritance. Bank error in your favor. You get a 1000 bucks. You just got the best deal on a car of your dreams. But this kind of joy doesn't last. Before you know it, you blast through your inheritance on unexpected auto repairs of your dream car. And life takes a nasty turn. Joy is here, gone tomorrow. You're all smiles, of course, until your vacuum cleaner bag explodes in your living room and the dog pukes on your new Oriental. Yes. Is there a need for us to be clear on biblical joy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is. And we begin with a working definition, all right? Joy shares some of the same truths with love as do the rest of the fruits of the Spirit, For example, it is a byproduct solely of the Holy Spirit. I I can't emphasize that enough. Therefore, as a fruit of the Spirit, it's, it's also something that one cannot experience or express unless he or she has the Holy Spirit in him. An individual must be born again before the Spirit can produce this fruit in him. I would say that joy also has counterfeit fruit in the world as the rest of the fruits do, there is a counterfeit joy, no question. The world knows a kind of joy. When Paul was witnessing to those in Lystra and Derbe, you may remember he told them this, that God didn't leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with fruit and gladness. 
you know many outside of Christ who experience joy all the time. You do. You know them, family members, friends. But how can this be when joy is a fruit of the Spirit only? And this is the nature of counterfeit fruit. When it comes to joy, there is a biblical joy and there is a counterfeit joy. And what we're talking about is a difference of kind, beloved, not degree. It's not simply that those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit have more joy than that which unbelievers have in this world. In fact, there are plenty of unbelievers in this world who seem to be more joyful than Christians, sadly. What you have to remember is that the difference between the fruit of the Spirit that we call joy and the joy that the world experiences is not one of quantity, but rather one of quality. Not of quantity, but quality. The fruits of the Spirit differ from their fallen counterfeits by nature. The kind of joy that Christians have is of an entirely different kind. Worldly counterfeit joy is is by nature purely a feeling, uncontrollable, quite temporary, and therefore dependent upon circumstances. That's worldly joy. We see this joy all over the New Testament, but let me give you just three examples. Right out of the texts. The first is the soil of rocky ground in Jesus' parable of the soils in Mark 4. As you know, the soils in this parable represent the condition of the human heart and the seed, the word of God. And I believe that only one of these soils, the good soil that receives the seed, leads to genuine saving faith and that the other three depict different conditions of an unregenerate heart. And one of the three that concerns us here of this unregenerate heart condition is the heart soil Jesus describes as rocky ground. The unbeliever's heart is like rocky ground so that when he hears the gospel, the text says, he immediately receives it with joy. But because the seed of the gospel never takes root in the rocky soil of his heart, his joy, it's, well, short-lived. Why? Because it's not generated by a true conversion, but rather it is generated by the hype of the moment. Perhaps, Perhaps some aspect of the gospel may have appealed to him, but he was not converted by it. And when affliction and persecution that that the faith often attracts came his way, he immediately falls away. Now, this sounds all too familiar to us, right? A, a guy hears the gospel message, he gets all excited over the prospects of going to heaven. But his interest is purely selfish. Whether or not he heard the complete and accurate gospel, his interest was not in being reconciled to a holy God who he offended, but simply knowing that, well, I get to go to heaven someday. He has no genuine remorse for sin, no genuine repentance that leads to faith. Could be that he was craving contentment and thought he'd try Christianity. That's another possibility. Or maybe his desire to be happy is so strong that he blindly accepts the gospel without understanding what Jesus really asks of him. Whatever his motive, he has no faith. His outburst of joy is over the very thought that 
He may have finally found something that will make him truly happy, but as I say, it's short-lived. All it takes is a trial to dash it, and he's not willing to put his life on the line for Christ, whom he does not know. He's a counterfeit believer with a counterfeit joy that turns cold and he stops following Christ. Second example I'll give you is the band of disciples in John 6 who got excited over Jesus because they thought they had found the Messiah. That is their kind of Messiah, someone who could do their bidding and satisfy all their felt needs. Hey, he fed all 5,000 of us with just a handful of bread and fish. Think what he can do for us. Oh, so much more. Their joy over the discovery was so strong, strong enough to force themselves on him with this intention of making him their own personal king. But Jesus was not their kind of Messiah. No, he was the biblical Messiah, whose true followers would drink his blood and eat his flesh. That is, they would be 100% devoted and surrendered to him. And as soon as this band of followers understood that, they lost their joy and followed him no more. The third example of counterfeit joy is the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Although joy is not mentioned in any of the gospel accounts of this episode, they all make the point of telling us that he went away sad, which is the opposite of joy. He became sad after Jesus proved to him that his great wealth had become his God. And as a result, he violated the first commandment. But he was not willing to part with his God, his idol, to trust Christ. He obviously derived his joy from being rich. And this made him sad, but apparently not sad enough to turn from the God of money to the one true God. Now, in all these examples, the common denominator is a joy that did not come from true faith, and therefore it was counterfeit. It it was strictly an emotional feeling of self-satisfaction that was superficial, temporary, uncontrollable, and conditioned upon a positive circumstance. Christian joy is completely different. Completely different. I have six ways in which biblical joy is different from its counterfeit in the world, and we have time maybe for three. Here we go. That was my introduction. In the first place, biblical joy is not purely an emotion, but a disposition that breeds the proper corresponding emotion or feeling, as are the rest of the fruits of the Spirit. Feeling happy or joyful is certainly part of true biblical joy, but it's by no means all of it, nor is it mostly that. Rather, it is a disposition, it is an attitude, a bent, a mindset, a state of mind. It is a posture of contentment woven into the very fabric of our new natures. It rests on the truth of the gospel itself And one's position in Christ, the truth that I have close, loving relationship with a holy and good sovereign because I've been reconciled to him and adopted by him, no longer an enemy deserving of his wrath, but now a son 
with the indwelling Holy Spirit giving me God's deposit of a great inheritance generates in me a deep and abiding contentment. God is both the giver of my joy and the object of my joy. In the second place, biblical joy is not temporary, but it is enduring. This aspect of joy is something that really drives home, I think, the very unique and distinct nature of joy. If God gives this to us as a gift by the indwelling Holy Spirit, then the joy he produces in us is as lasting and permanent as he himself is. You see that? In other words, if your joy is founded in a relationship with the immutable God, that is the God that never changes, what is there in life that could possibly take away your joy? Well, not one thing, beloved. What I'm saying is that the Christian joy is organic to the new nature. It isn't something that he can ever lose regardless of what takes place around him. True biblical joy cannot be eradicated in the Christian life, not if it's produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. He may struggle at times to express it, allow situations to to damper it, when living by sight rather than faith, maybe. But the joy of the Lord is always with us because it's in us. It's part of you if you are a believer in Christ. There is never a context in life where a Christian will lose this deep-seated joy in his life. He cannot. Now, let me hasten to the third. In this third place, biblical joy is not something uncontrollable, but it's quite under our control. What do I mean by this? Well, let me be clear that I am not denying that there are times in our Christian life when joy seems to overtake us spontaneously without any anticipation of it from us. And that certainly happens. And then next time it the next time it happens to you you should stop right then and there at that very moment and praise God immediately in the thrill of the moment it makes our praise seem more heartfelt when we do that but you must understand that the reason we have these blessed occasions when we're overtaken by a swell of joy when joy wells up inside of us instantly is because that is characteristic of the new redeemed nature. Listen very carefully to what I have to say here. If Christians are by nature joyous, then they will experience those moments of spontaneous joy when they encounter something that triggers that part of their nature. In that case you need to understand that it is not the circumstance that caused the joy, but your new nature functioning as it should. When this came to me, I mean, I rejoiced. Let me tell you. Let me illustrate this for you. I am an asthmatic. I have been since I was five. I'm allergic to certain plants, animals, dust, perfumes. I'll leave it at that. It's just a short list. 
It's much longer. You may not be an asthmatic or even allergic to anything. If both of us get scratched in our arms by a piece of Timothy hay, we will experience very different reactions. Your arm stays the same, no big deal. My arm swells at the spot where I was scratched. Now, what caused my big itchy welt? What do you say? Was it the hay? Or was it the fact that I am by nature allergic? You see, it cannot be the hay, right? It cannot be the hay since you were scratched by it and your arm stayed the same. In the same way, Christians have a new nature, and therefore, by nature, they are joyful people. So they will necessarily be overshadowed by a feeling of joy and spontaneously rejoice at such times. This is why Christians can also rejoice in times of trial. When there's nothing about our situation that is joyful. The Holy Spirit brings to remember us wonderful biblical truth that ministers to our soul. And we feel the deep and abiding contentment though the, uh, right through the tears of sorrow. More on that later. Here I want to clarify, though, that Christians can and will experience a welling up of joy instantly when they come into certain situations that are truly joyful and praiseworthy because their nature demands this. Now, having said that, I'm making the point in this third instance, this third truth about joy, that this disposition is very much something we can control, just like love. If we are commanded to rejoice, then we can, right? Both Testaments command us to rejoice in God, and we must rejoice. You must rejoice because God commands you to rejoice. Well, so what if I don't feel like rejoicing? Hmm. I mentioned that there are dry seasons in the Christian life where there is not so much that reacts with our joyous nature and leads to spontaneous exuberance. Indeed, such seasons are a drag on us. Maybe we, we battle feelings of being blue, even a bit depressed for one reason or another, for, or for no reason known to us. A sort of melancholy overshadows us with no apparent reason, and we don't feel much like doing anything, much less rejoicing. Well, I'm just being honest. It's not that our particular ministries to which God has appointed us are not important. I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a member of a local church, I'm a citizen of a country, I have responsibilities, I have God-given responsibilities. No, they're important. And because, you, because they are important, it bothers you that you're not joyful. It's not that we've lost interest in the things of God. Quite the contrary, we love God and his business, which is why we're so distraught that we feel no joy in the work. God-given responsibilities become somewhat a drudgery. 
You love to wear clean clothes. But you find it, find it more increasingly difficult to muster the energy to wash them. You like a clean house, but you get tired of having to maintain it. You see, there are seasons in life where everyone, that everyone faces, where, where life itself becomes dull and meaning, menial. And, and this can happen to Christians as well. What, we're, what are we to do when we get to that point? What happens when I don't feel like praying, going to church, teaching Bible studies, witnessing to my neighbor who seems very interested in the gospel? The answer is, keep on doing what you know to be right, and you will eventually feel right. Does that sound familiar? We've made this formula evident already with love. And it's the same with joy. But forcing myself to obey what I don't feel like, isn't that hypocritical? No. No, it's not hypocritical to, to, to obey God against your feelings. It's hypocritical if you tell people that you're overjoyed at obeying some part of God's word when you're not. That's hypocritical. You see the difference? Let me say that... Say that <clears throat> Uh, that the best way to engender a joy for God's work and nurture it once you have it in full force is to be about the work. Don't neglect the ordinary means of grace if you're feeling joyless. Rather, avail yourself of them all the more and you will rejoice the soul because these are meant to do that. If you're not feeling much like praying because you haven't been experiencing the joy of communion with God, continue to pray because that's what God would have you to do. You don't feel much like assembling with the body on the Lord's Day, but go and give God praise that is due his name in spite of your feelings because God is worthy to be praised. And, and it does good to be with God's people. You haven't felt much like reading the word lately and you find it to be a chore whenever you pick it up. But sit down in a quiet place, open the book, and meditate on just one small truth and then go to the next one and continue. And continue on a while and you will hear God speak through his word to your soul because meditating on his word is good for you, especially in those portions that, that you might actually resonate with at the time. There are plenty of psalmists who feel like you do. Thank God they're there and their testimonies are there. Practice the Lord's Supper with the body because the act of remembering the death of Christ is meant to enrich the soul. Fellowshipping with the body is like spiritual medicine to sick or weak souls. I love coming to church every Sunday. At the very least, for that reason, because it's so good to be with God's people. 
acts of rejoicing are also very much part of restoring your joy in the Lord. The, the, the Psalms summon us over and over again. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's actually a command. Oh, it sounds like an invitation. Maybe it's an invocation. But the psalmist is calling you to do something you're not doing yet. Go to the house. Go to the assembly. In the New Covenant, it's the assembly. We go to the assembly. And we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord's day because he's made it for us. All you peoples, clap your hands, shout to God with joyful cries, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, the great King over all the earth. Rejoice in the Lord, you just, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Psalm 77, 97. May the meditation be pleasing to him. I will rejoice in the Lord. You can hear the resolve in Psalm 104. Well, in conclusion, I want to say that I hope that our launch into this next fruit has caused you to rejoice. Mm -hmm. The nature of the topic lends itself to that for sure. But maybe not so for some. Maybe you're finding this aspect of the Christian life somewhat foreign to you. And if so, the first thing you should do is to make sure that you're in the faith. Maybe the gospel is something that you need to trust. Trust Christ. Come to know him in his love and experience the joy unspeakable, the kind that Paul talks about, the psalmists talk about. But if you, if you are sure of your faith and you are born again, then you need to know this doctrine better. And we will still have more to say about it, I promise. So be encouraged. But whatever the reasons may be, it's always true that if you do what you know to be right and obey God regardless of how you feel, in this case, the commands to rejoice by praising God for his goodness and his mercies, which are new every day, you will you will find yourself singing new songs in no time. And don't neglect the ordinary means of grace. In part two of our study, I will address in greater detail those times in the Christian life that are joyless, as well as the place of legitimate mourning in the Christian life and how those coincide with our joy. So more to come. Rejoice. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your love and your mercy, for the fact that you have given us the word, a sure word, the more sure word, which is written, preserved down through the centuries in our hands that we might read and know and learn and understand. Oh, God, we do pray that you will find your people to be rejoicing in these last days and not because there is anything about them that causes us joy, but because of you, because of our relationship with you, because 
of your loyal love for your covenant people, because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, because we are outfitted to fight the good fight and to run well. Lord, we do pray that should you, should you return in our lifetime, you will find us rejoicing. And we do thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.